So starting with 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and he gave it to David and also his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. And the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lark, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. How do you respond when someone is going to take the place that you feel you rightfully deserve? That's a tough situation, isn't it? Perhaps a personal anecdote might help. I was supposed to be captain of the varsity basketball team. I don't know why some of you laughed. There's a basketball physique behind this robe. I was supposed to be captain of the varsity basketball team. I was actually really good at basketball growing up. You can't tell because I'm not really that tall. But as a freshman, I practiced with the varsity basketball team. And I found out that I can pass, I can shoot, I can dribble just as well as them. I was actually faster than them. That was my greatest strength was my quickness. And pound for pound, I was a pretty strong 15-year-old. And so naturally, when you're a freshman practicing with varsity, though you feel intimidated inside, your head begins to inflate inside as well. And then entered my sophomore year. I actually made the varsity basketball team as a sophomore. Now, where I'm from and in my day, you couldn't actually play on varsity as a freshman. There was a rule against that. But I had convinced myself I would have had there not been a rule. In the last six or eight games of the sophomore season, I started as a point guard on the varsity basketball team. So needless to say, is my upperclassmen years are coming and, and junior year is right on the horizon, I'm gonna be the captain of the basketball team. 
And not only that, I'm going to be the focal point of the offense because anyone who plays basketball knows it's one thing to be captain, but it's great to be center of attention for the offense. That's where the glory lies. And everything was fine until Ty Harrelson moved into town. (laughs) Ty was five inches taller than me. Ty played the same position as me. Ty, though he came from a smaller school, averaged 25 points per game at that smaller school. And I came to find out later on that Ty actually almost scored 3,000 points during his high school career, which placed him in the top 30 players all time in the state of Texas. I don't think I need to keep going on. I didn't stand a chance. My basketball rulership was overturned. My throne was robbed. And whether by divine edict or coach's edict, it didn't matter. I didn't have a say. I was going to be playing second fiddle to tie. Really, the only decision I had at that point was how would I respond to this new ruler who came to town? And that really, in many ways, is the idea that shaping these chapters in the middle of the book of Samuel, there's a very important transition that has taken place. Goliath has been slain, but it's not by the person you might expect. It's not the king whose name is Saul. He tried to give his borrowed armor to the guy. And it's also not the king's son whose name is Jonathan. He's the heir apparent, the crown prince, the king in waiting. No, the Man for the job was this courageous shepherd boy from Bethlehem. He would slay the giant with a sling and a stone. Very unorthodox way to take on the greatest warrior of the time. And so I say that because at this point, there is a transition that's taking place. It's the slow beginning of a transfer of power and popularity. It's the slow beginning of the fulfillment of the words of God to Saul just two chapters before Goliath gets slain. Saul, you will lose your throne and I will give it to someone who is after my heart. Saul knows he's losing power. It's a divine edict. He can't control it. The question that lies for him is how will he respond to God's chosen king? How would the declining king respond to God's chosen king? But there's someone else, and this is someone we often forget. He also had royal rights to the throne. It's Jonathan. He was the heir apparent, the crown prince. To put it differently, if if Saul loses the throne because of the ascendancy of David, at least he's had some time with power and prestige ruling over Israel. But if David ascends to the throne, what does it mean for Jonathan? The throne is altogether cut off from him. To put it simply, if David rules, Jonathan never will. And we don't think about that very often when we come to this passage, we typically look at Jonathan as an archetype of friendship because of his loyalty to David. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not ultimately what's really going on. The throne is at stake for Saul and Jonathan. 
And perhaps that's the strangest part of this narrative. It might be the most important thing to notice we look back at the passage. There's the juxtaposed, the juxtaposed reactions of Saul and Jonathan to this ascending king, this shepherd from Bethlehem. And so I'm going to say the question again. How would the king and his son respond to God's chosen king? Both had the throne to lose. But for a moment, let's pause. We don't normally do this at the beginning to insert ourselves into the storyline because it can make a mess of the passage, but I think it's important here, and here's why. We, we enter this world believing that we rule the throne of our lives. It's naturally human to do so. It's actually one of the effects of the fall. And so we run around like many kings, setting up our many kingdoms, not thinking of it that way, but using really effective and good tools to do so, like education, influence, friendships, networks, power, position, our giftedness. And the reason I know that we do this is the way people respond to having a boss and always wanting to be their own boss, of course. Everyone is an entrepreneur waiting to set up their own enterprise, right? The world is an oyster, but I know this too, even more poignantly, whenever our desires are threatened or unmet. Let me put it differently. When our little kingdoms begin to crumble, when our lordship isn't working, and you know what it enters in at those times? When we're faced with our insufficient self-sovereignty, that there's something we want and can't get, or there's something we have but need more of, Disappointment, discontentment, anger, jealousy, bitterness, even hate. You see, it's not uncommon to be a king and to want to have a kingdom. But it might be, if we would listen to the prayer of Jesus, why he began with, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because the first passage to freedom is actually our kingdom crumbling. Let me say it differently. It's a difficult reality to be dethroned by God's design. Isn't it? But the crumbling of our kingdoms might actually just be the first time we've actually lived. It's a severe mercy. And Saul and Jonathan are both experiencing it. So we have to relate and ask the same question that faces Saul and Jonathan. How will we relate to God's chosen king? And we'll come back to that at the end. But for now, in reverse order of the narrative of chapter 18, let's begin with Saul and see how he responds. And then let's conclude by seeing how Jonathan responds. If you'll look with me again at verses 6 to 12, Saul responds with intense jealousy. As they were coming home, David returns from striking down the Philistine, and the women come out of the cities of Israel, and they sing and dance, and they meet King Saul, and they do it with tambourines and songs of joy and with musical instruments. But their song to one another as they celebrate is Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry 
The saying displeased him. He said, they ascribe to David 10,000s and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. And the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed on Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And Saul had his spear in hand and he hurled it for he thought I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. And so, church, what we see is, humanly speaking, we we can understand and sympathize with Saul's response, at least the first part, right? Uh, He he might currently reign over Israel, but the approval rating is saying that David rules over their hearts, and he's not even yet king. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis points this out in his commentary in this way, he says, one cannot miss the repetitions of chapter 18. There are six uses of some form of the verb to love with David as the object. Verse 1, 3, 16, 20, 22, and 28. Everyone seems to love David. Saul's daughter loves David. All Israel and Judah loves David, but not Saul. He fears David. At the end of the chapter, the point has been drummed into us. Everyone loves David except Saul. Why? He is threatened by the ascendancy of David, and his threatened desires are an open passageway to unbridled jealousy. You know, jealousy begins when we see those desires fulfilled in someone else, don't they? Isn't that how it begins? that which we believe we should rightfully have, that which we have always hoped for hasn't been met for us, but it sure has for someone else. And we have to be careful because that's the passageway to unbridled jealousy. And we see it and we hear it and something will begin to happen within us. And if we don't keep it in check, it will intensify to the point where it's no longer under our control, but it's controlling us. How do I know this? Well, jealousy is progressive, and it's in the text. You see it in the life of Saul. It intensifies. Let me put it this way. In verses 6 and 7, Saul's jealous. I want what he has. The women are singing about the 10,000s of David. Everyone loves him. I want what he has. But verse 8 takes a sharp turn. It's the progression, the spiral downward. He's angry. Jealousy is, I want what he has, but it will, if not checked, become, I hate them for having it. And that's not where it ends. It actually spirals even farther into envy, which is not, I want what he has, but I want him to lose it or suffer harm. Saul taking a spear to launch it at a man who has done nothing wrong to him as a matter of fact, has slain his greatest enemy. Jonathan would mention that in chapter 19 as his defense for David. He's done nothing wrong to you. He has only done good. He has won victories for Israel. What are you doing? Well, that's the madness of unbridled jealousy. He's not thinking straight. And this threatened desire in him slowly grows and is left unchecked and it becomes overwhelming, even lethal, He's not even thinking in his right mind anymore. And his envy sets in. And he tries to kill David. Not once, not twice, 
But you're going to see in the next 13 chapters of this book as we go through it, he is relentlessly trying to kill the one who highlights his threatened desires. Think about Cain and Abel. Perhaps that will help clarify this. It ended in murder, didn't it? And the Lord, the Lord warned Cain. He came to him and he said, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. You must overcome it. So God warns him to rule over the desires before the desires will rule over him. But Cain doesn't listen and in the end his brother's dead. Brothers and sisters, we have to keep and watch those places in our hearts where we see things like discontentment and disappointment constantly stirring up. Because if not checked, those will become the places, the seedbeds for something as nasty as this. And what we might find if we're able to take a step back is it's actually the crumbling of the kingdom we thought we should have. The irony of this passage is that might be the best thing that's ever happened to you. And though that's a scary thought, it's actually a good one. It leads us to Jonathan, because if Saul's response to this king that he didn't wish to have was this intense unbridled jealousy that consumes him, Jonathan's is much different. He had as much to lose, if not more. So how does he respond? Look back at the passage. It's committed self-sacrificial love. Verses one to four, as soon as he, that's David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. He loved him as his own soul. He loved him as his own soul. It says it three times in three chapters. And it's not the common kind of love that we might think. This is the kind of love that it says that it was as if he knit his own soul to David. If I can give you a more wooden translation, it is that he bound himself together in David's soul. Now that's not a common friendship. That's not common at all. This is more than just an ordinary affection that you might feel because you see something beautiful in someone and they create in you this, this feeling of wanting to be near them. This also wasn't Jonathan just trying to attach himself to the guy who has the highest approval rating. He loved him as his own soul. And it would be at the expense of his own life. The end of chapter 20, if you continue reading, when his own father takes the same spear and tries to kill his own son. David easily could have been viewed as a threat to Jonathan's sovereignty, but Jonathan's desires for the throne were not threatened by the ascendancy of David. He was more concerned with David himself than he was his throne. And so to David, he knit himself 
even at the loss of his own kingdom. He was bound to this Goliath-defeating shepherd from Bethlehem. But that's not it. There's two other things. One, it describes his uh, love for David as of the weightiest of commitments that he enters into covenant with him. Okay, and I'm sure all of you at some point have been to a wedding. I did one last weekend, I'm going to do one this coming weekend. It's one of the happiest things for a minister to do. It's an incredible gift of being a minister, getting to officiate a wedding. It is structured in a covenant. You have two parties, you have witnesses, you have vows and obligations, and it's done so to say this is no temporary thing. This is permanent. And at the surrender and cost of my own life, I do give myself to you, right? At least that's how it's supposed to be. That's how it's intended to be. That's the design. And this is the same idea here that Jonathan is initiating a human covenant with David, saying, as you live, so shall I live. As you die, so shall I die. And we know he's gonna keep his commitment because he's gonna confront his own father twice. And then he's going to participate in David's escape. But not without a tearful farewell to the one that he loves so deeply. And we know, if not from Jonathan's perspective, that he did love him that way. Because David, when he hears of Jonathan's death, like an obituary, sings, your love to me was more precious than that of any woman. This is no common relationship. This is no common response. Jonathan's kingdom is crumbling and his response to the ascending king is committed, self-sacrificial love. Did you see that he stripped himself of his royal robe and armor? Does it remind you of another story, maybe like the father and the prodigal son? That the most unlikely person gets the robe and the ring? Jonathan surrenders his rights. Not my rule, but yours. And he did it not out of fear, but out of self-sacrificial, committed love. And so you see these two juxtaposed responses, don't you? You have Saul, who is in fear of losing the throne and has intense jealousy that turns into hatred, into opposition. And then you have Jonathan who responds to the same situation with self-sacrificial committed love. And it begs us, brothers and sisters, to ask the question, how would we respond to God's chosen king? And we find this story actually to be a window. And it's a window for this reason. The life of David is the window, the passageway through which would come God's ultimate king. He's gonna be called the son of David. That's no accident. And if you're familiar with the scriptures, you know from this point forward, that's exactly how everyone speaks of him. He's God's chosen king for you and me. And he will either rule over you or he will rule in you. But he will rule. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the songs of the Psalms and the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, even the minor prophets, those books we rarely read but should, there's a promised one coming. He's chosen by God. And there's specific verbiage talking about his coming to the throne of David, from the root of David, as the branch of David, 
out of the house of David as the son of David. And then in the Gospels, this is picked up. Matthew's genealogy, I'm sure all of you have read that multiple times, right? It starts with Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in multiple ways, from a variety of different persons, this continues. The the professions of the blind and the lame and the sick, when they would encounter Jesus Christ, was have mercy on us, son of David. Why? They needed a king that could conquer disease and death. There's only one. Son of David, have mercy on us. And then you hear the chorus of the crowds as Jesus enters Jerusalem towards the end of his life on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. Do you remember their song? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If I may keep going. The letters of Paul, especially to Timothy, he calls him the offspring of David. The apostle John in his apocalyptic letter of revelation at the very end of your Bibles The introduction calls Jesus the kings, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then it climatically ends with Jesus' final self-declaration. If you have a red letter Bible, it's the last of the red letters. And Jesus says this, I am the root and descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. He's the king the king of kings. When he returns, that's the tattoo on his leg. How will you respond to God's chosen king? Like Saul, with opposition, anger, feeling threatened because this ruler will certainly take the throne. Or like Jonathan, with self-sacrificial, committed love that you've been waiting for the day when you could finally give up. And even just saying that out loud makes me feel a deep breath. It's not life-taking, it's liberating. Perhaps the most stark place where we see this reality, the most gruesome and backwards one, because it was mockery, was a sign hung above his crowned, drooping, bloody head, nailed to the cross of wood, the king of the Jews. I think there's some things that Jonathan saw truly, but not fully yet. Jesus, I'm sorry, David wasn't king. But there's something he saw in David that made his bending of his knee more like an engagement than a surrender. Have you ever witnessed an engagement? It's a really special moment. Videographers and photographers get to see it all the time. You ever look at that guy down on his knee and go, you have no idea (laughs) what you are about to lose. Self-sovereignty is over. (laughs) What a silly thing to think, because when he's on his knee, he is drastically more aware of what he's gaining than what he's losing. 
Because binding himself to that person for him seems the greatest of joys at the greatest of costs, no matter what the sacrifice may be. And if you knew what kind of king Jesus is, your bending of your knee would look a little bit more like an engagement. And you would give yourself to him. And you would find that while your kingdom crumbles, his starts to reign. And in his kingdom is life and joy and freedom forevermore. Church, at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess him as king. The question is, how will you respond? Will you bend the knee in love like Jonathan? Or will you be forced down like Saul? That is all the difference. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.